Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. Your host, Greg Rotersheimer, is now a designated financial coach. If your financial situation is causing you stress because of debt, budgeting, or saving for retirement, and anything in between, contact me to discuss how I can coach you to financial success. Email me at greg at suburbanfolk.com or call me at 804 804- Five nine two one eight seven one for a fifteen minute free consultation to get started with your plan. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Two hundred fifty dollars a month into my child's five twenty nine from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for eighty percent of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables, right. so. Our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a, a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but at that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's episode will focus on finance. It's a topic that is near and dear to my heart, specifically financial independence. That means a lot of different things to different people, especially when you get into something called the FIRE movement, which stands for financial independence and retiring early. I actually had the opportunity to be on a podcast called FI After 40. It is a blog and podcast run by Ben Reader. And we had a great time talking about the pursuit of financial independence, again, what our definitions were, and then things that you can do and habits that you can build in order to get there if it's something that is of interest to you. So we had such a great conversation that I invited Ben to come on to the show and tell us about his story, what made him pursue his own financial independence and also tell us more about his podcast and what motivated him to go forward with producing the blog and podcast. Ben, thanks so much for joining the show. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be on your show and uh, dive into another conversation about our, our stories and uh, and see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to kick us off by giving your background? And again, what was it that motivated you to start your blog and podcast? So I started the blog and the podcast back in early April. And it was kind of the front end of the quarantine, being home uh, from work, working remotely, had a little bit of extra time in my hands. And I'd been going through a lot of just kind of personal changes over the previous year. And a lot of self-reflection and a lot of changes financially in in my personal life, went through a divorce. And so there's just a lot of kind of thoughts going through my head, a lot of contemplation and things I was trying to to just process. And so it felt like I needed to put those somewhere and a blog seemed like a good spot to get those thoughts dumped out of my head instead of uh, just kind of clanging around in there. So I uh, so started the blog and shortly after I said, hey, you know what? I might as well start a podcast too. So it's you know it's pretty easy to start those these days. Ends up being quite a bit of work as you're, I'm sure, very familiar with. But it's been an awesome experience and it's been a great place for me to uh, I get not not only get my story out there and kind of share with people what I've been going through, but also to interact with others and get their stories out there as well. So for everybody that is in, regardless of where they're at in life, whether they're younger and kind of just starting out in their careers, or if they are later in their career and are trying to get their finances put together, I felt like there was a lot of information to talk about, a lot of stories to hear, and it just felt like something that I had the time to do and something that I had some background in, having been a communications major in college, did a lot with radio and kind of journalism, newspaper, um, things along those lines. So yeah, so it all just kind of kicked off and it's it's gone really well since then. And I've gotten a great chance to, to interact with people like you and hear other podcasts, read other blogs. And it's been a, a really good experience so far. You mentioned going remote, which I think a lot of people can relate to right now. How much time would you say you gained back that allowed you to 
say I've got enough time to do a blog and podcast. Well, so my commute previously was about 40, 45 minutes each way. So, you know, I'm looking at an hour, hour and a half or so just in the commute that I have every day. And then, uh, you know, not having to get up early and get ready for work and do all the morning routine stuff. So it definitely freed up a couple of hours a day, um, which was nice. And it also, I think, probably a lot of people can relate to this. Working from home, you just, there's all those little things that you can do, like, you know, you don't need to take an hour lunch. You can just kind of grab lunch on the side while you're doing stuff. And so it just kind of frees up little blocks of time throughout the day. I, I've really actually enjoyed working from home. It's something I wasn't quite sure how I would feel. I definitely, I do miss interacting with people, you know, in person, but it's been a pretty good experience. And it's given me some, some free time back for sure. And you're not catching up on your Netflix binging or anything like that. It sounds <laughs> like you're being productive with that time. I like it. Yeah, as much as possible. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I laugh, but I think that is a significant issue for some remote workers that, yeah. for example, in the podcasting world, early on, I had seen that listenership was down because people now had access to their TV and apparently people are more interested in watching YouTube than just listening to audio. I guess they <laughs> listen to audio at their desk because they don't have a TV in front of them. So yeah. it, it is a challenge. I, yeah, I've heard I've heard different things. So like I started the podcast during the pandemic quarantine, but I had also heard a similar thing where the listenership in general had been down because people didn't have a commute. And that was also a place where they would spend a lot of time listening is you know, if they've got 30 minutes in the car or if they're, you know, on the subway or whatever it is, that's time when they could throw in their earbuds and listen to a podcast. And and so I think early on, it definitely dropped off across the board, but it it has seemed like people have found ways, they've kind of found a new normal and found spots in the day, whether it's while they're cooking or maybe going for a morning walk. So I think in general, that just kind of statistically podcasts have have definitely picked back up and they've been, I mean, they're the trajectory is, I don't know the data off the top of my head, but I've seen plenty of information about how it's really increasing uh, pretty significantly. And and if you pay attention to what Spotify has done, I mean, they've invested a lot of money bringing over Joe Rogan and uh, I think The Ringer and a lot of money going into podcasting these days. So I think it's it's going to be around for a while. I joke and say, hey, you and I are doing podcasts and talking about finance. What could be better? Right, exactly. <laughs> for, for, for a couple of finance nerds such as ourselves. Well, the other thing that I like about the theme of your website and show is the emphasis on after 40. Now, yeah. is that basically meant to follow your own journey or did you recognize that there was a gap in this whole financial realm for people that may have not gotten off to a quick start but need to get their finances in order? I think both really. So it's just something that was a topic that I was really focused on. So it made sense. But like you said, there's definitely a gap in just out there as far as the information goes. It's mostly geared toward, you know, if you start doing searches for blogs and podcasts and information, a lot of it's geared towards people maybe in their 20s or 30s that are early enough in their career where if they make some significant changes with, you know, minimizing expenses, increasing their savings, they can put themselves in a position to retire by the age of 30 or 35. And so that's kind of the core of of traditionally what you'll see with the fire movement, but there there's a lot of kind of offshoots that you started to see over the last couple of years where there's just just different versions because everyone's at different places in their life. So for me, um, getting started later in life. So kind of mid-career people, maybe late 30s and their 40s. My story is I was not focusing on my finances. I was just kind of doing the bare minimum. I was going paycheck to paycheck, felt like we were doing okay, You know, had the house, had the cars, but along with that, had the credit card debt and was just kind of treading water for a long time. And I started to realize this feels normal because everyone kind of spends money and that's just what you do. But this kind of normal isn't really good. And so what I wanted to do is make some changes in, in my my own life, and then also hopefully influence some other people to say, you can make changes too. You know, you're not alone in this, even though you've gotten in the habit of really spending, 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 and um, accumulating that debt within a short period of time, really a year to five years, you can make a lot of difference. If you're 40, 45 years old, you can make a big change before you're 50. And and then maybe you're in a position to to do some different things 
earlier than you might have expected. So, um, so yeah, just trying to get people's mindset shifted and trying to fill that space because it definitely felt like there was a bit of a void in the the kind of fire community regarding people that are starting a little bit later in life. For you personally, was it a eureka moment or you taking stock of your current financial situation with credit card debt and the house and so on, more of a gradual realization. Uh, yeah, I think it was gradual. It was something that I think I'd, I'd become kind of numb to it. I just it was, I just accepted it, and I knew that 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 debt was there, and uh, I just figured, hey, you know, maybe we'll pay it off at some point. It was something that once I think going through, particularly going through the divorce, was something that just there's a lot of financial elements to that, obviously, but there's also a lot of just reflection on personally on, on my own part where you know how come i feel like i'm i'm 40 years old in my early 40s and i feel like everything's kind of falling apart right now like my marriage my career is not going where it's supposed to i'm in debt like all these things that i feel like that i should be really peaking right now like if i'd asked myself 15 years before that you know what are you going to be doing when you're you know 40 45 i would have thought i would have been in a better place and so i think it was it was more of a a lot of things all converging at once. And and I think, honestly, going through that divorce, there was selling the house was a big part of it. And I think that actually was the big step towards paying off debt. So we were in a position where we made some money off of the, the sale of the, the, the home. And that really allowed me to pay off a big chunk of debt. And I think that got the the ball rolling for me mentally. It was like, okay, now I've got some momentum and I need to keep this going. What role did finances play up into the divorce in particular? Was it just made things harder on top of other items that were going on? Was it a more significant driver? The reason I ask is you do tend to read that one of the top issues that can come up is finances. And, and since you mentioned it sounded like your journey really hit that moment of realizing that there needed to be some change along with the same time with sounds like changes in your marriage. What was the relationship between financial life and married life? I think the financial part of it was definitely a stressor, but I think that was also kind of a symptom of just communication issues in general. So I think that's the risk of not being on the same page with your partner is, you know, I don't know that the money is going to cause a marriage to fail or that the money is going to cause a relationship to to fall apart but i think that it's more of a a sign of hey there's something missing here you guys aren't talking about things you're you're overlooking things you're kind of bare, putting things under the rug right and i think that was what was going on with us was i was in denial i was just kind of if i just keep going along eventually things will work themselves out and that's just such a passive way of dealing with things. And that's that's kind of personal to me. That's, that's a tendency that I've had in life is to just kind of let life happen to me. And so it was a real, uh, like I said, wake up call where it was like, hey, we, sh- we should have been doing a lot of this stuff the whole time. You know, we, we really didn't dig into our finances, sit down and talk through them until we were f- filling out the divorce paperwork. And it was like, that was one of the first times when we really had a good sense of like, talking openly about what our debt was and what our expenses were and kind of mapping it all out. And it was crazy. I'm like, now is the time when we're actually doing this is is when it's all kind of wrapping up. And so it's just, um, it's just important for people to, to be open with each other in that don't avoid those kind of uncomfortable things, right? When it comes to being in debt, that can be something it's like, you don't want to talk about it. It's kind of embarrassing. You know, you think, wow, I, I don't want to, bring this up. This is just a, a challenge that we, I want to ignore it. And, and at least that was, that was kind of my approach. And so, so yeah, I think again, communications is, is critical for, for any relationship to be successful. And that was a big, that was, I think that was more a part of a, a, a reason that we drifted apart was that we, there was just a gap there in, in how we were interacting with each other. So if I can restate what you're describing, Almost like the finances are an ex, an extreme external litmus test is what I'm going to say that what's going on in a marriage between the two people is going to stay private as it should. But finances, while people don't talk about them, you're talking about bills and credit cards and things that are external that then probably uh, really 
highlight what potential issues are going on and certainly can make them worse, but probably not usually the core issue of what's going on. It can really highlight where there's differences between personalities. Um, and so me not being a very frugal person, I was more of a, a spender. I want newer things. And she was more of a, a saver. And by nature, she was more of a saver and more of a frugal person. And that ended up causing just kind of just clashes between the two of us. And so I would go just, I'm like, I'm just going to go do this because I want to do this. And I, I shouldn't have to get permission from somebody to, to you know, go play golf or to go to Home Depot and get you know, whatever, a new a new countertop for the bathroom. I just want to go do this stuff. I want a nice bathroom. See, I was just kind of going in different directions and that was problematic for sure. Can I ask, did you both work or did you have to figure out income as a one income family? We both had full-time jobs. Uh, she was a counselor. And um, so her work was, was a little more stressful in the sense of uh, she only was paid when she was working. She wasn't in a place that got like paid time off or that kind of thing. And so for her work and making money was always a very stressful thing. And I was more of like a salary position where I had time off and you know I had a, a set salary that was going to be the same every time I get paid and hers was up and down. And so there was we were kind of in different places when it came to our income. I think I generally made more, but she certainly had a very challenging job and she still does. And so, yeah, so we both uh, had our own income, but but it was, and this is, I think, something a lot of couples will will go through um, sometimes before they're even married is when do you start combining things or do you combine things or, you know, is it better off to have separate accounts? And that's a, you know, we went through a lot of those conversations over time and it ended up just being more convenient for me to inherit, for one of us to inherit everything and, you know, the kind of primary bill payer and all that. And, and it ended up being me, which probably in retrospect was, wasn't the best idea because she generally was just a more responsible person when it came to that. But I, for whatever reason, ended up inheriting that. And so we did kind of converge things, but then it became something where I was just kind of on top of it, not doing a great job with things. And, and so she was just kind of out of sight, out of mind when it came to money. And I think it's important for both, both people to, to have insight into and input into what's happening with the expenses. So that way you're not just kind of ignorant to what's happening. And that causes, I think, a lot of resentment for people. I would also imagine after the fact, if the other person that's not involved thinks that the person that is doing all of the transactions is doing a poor job, that person's going to feel attacked and and almost like Monday morning quarterbacking. So yeah, I could definitely see how that situation could be cause for some friction to say the least. And jumping way, way back to the beginning, I mentioned in the intro that um, financial independence means different things to different people. And, and you've talked about some of those considerations. One, making sure people know that it's not too late to get educated and move forward from wherever they are and they'll be amazed at how far they can get. But uh, as you were figuring out what you wanted to do with your finances, what ended up being your personal definition of financial independence? It is different for different people. And, and it is uh, in a lot of ways, as much as it's about money, I think it's about more than that when you really start to to think about the concepts behind it and why it's important. So for me, it's really, it's it's what I've been working towards is deciding that I need to be the best version of myself. And I can't do that when so much of my life is eaten up by stress surrounding debt and shame surrounding my spending habits or where I'm at in life financially. It's not the most important thing, but it just bleeds into kind of everything that you do, your career, your your personal life, you know, your your social time with friends and so for me, it's it's getting myself into a place where I'm happy with who I am, and I've got the I don't have the stress that surrounds, you know, whether it's my career, whether it's my savings, whether it's my bills, and I can instead have that time to spend on things that are important to me. So it's family time, or you know, or, or travel, or you, whatever passions may come up in five, ten, fifteen years that I'm not even thinking about yet. So it's really just it, it's it's kind of setting myself up for success longer term. And I've never really been a forward thinking person until more recently. I just kind of, again, like I said before, I just let life happen to me. And I figured, well, things will be fine. That's what everyone does. You just kind of, you know, stumble through life and you've got your ups and downs. And then hopefully by the time you're older, you know, you've, 
you got a little bit of money set aside and you'll be okay. And I'm, I'm like, this, there's got to be a better way to do this. And, and so, yeah, so I think that's I've really been more focused on developing good habits now and setting myself up financially so that in 5, 10, 15 years, whatever is important to me at that point in my life, I'll be able to do and pursue. Let's hit some of what I think, at least, is the fun stuff of tightening your belt and getting a new lease on financial life. Can you tell us some of the areas where you've cut back? So, for example, some of my favorite stories for me is I'm not a car guy. So I am proud to say that I keep my cars as relatively as long as I can and clothes. I'm not buying any designer label clothes or anything like that. What kind of cuts have you uh, taken on for your budget? I've done a handful of things, just kind of monthly expenses when it comes to things like cable and internet. I've cut back on things and I've renegotiated certain, you know, just little little things. Like you can cut little little bits and pieces and those definitely add up. Like for example, I've been um, renting a modem from my cable provider for for years and years, and it's like it was like fourteen dollars a month, which isn't a ton, but I, I've been doing it for five, ten, ten, probably ten years, and so that yeah, that ends up being a quite a bit of money over time. So I just bought a router, and it was like sixty bucks, and I'm like, this thing paid for itself in two or three months. It's crazy that I've been renting a modem this whole time. Um, so that's one little example. Probably a larger one that I've done is is to really. I have a hard time budgeting. And so what I did for things like food and gas is I actually set aside a separate um, um, checking account with its own debit card that I, I, I move $200 every paycheck over to it. So every two weeks, $200 go into that account. And that's my food and gas budget. And so instead of me thinking like, oh, well, am I at $150? Am I at $400? Am I at $600? I, I just, I just, use that one card and I know however much money I have on it is is replenished over time and and that's kept my food spending way down. I'm not I'm not ordering out nearly as much as I used to. I'm not going out to eat nearly as much as I used to. And and some of this has been, you know, not necessarily my decision. It's because restaurants were all closed for a long time, but uh, but even now that things have opened back up, I've I've kind of developed that that habit. And so I'm still cooking for myself for the most part and for my family. So I've saved a lot of money just on food and on groceries. And that's probably cut my my monthly spending. I, I went back and looked at my mint uh, history. I, I've been using mint for a long time just to keep track of expenses. Even though I haven't really paid close attention to it, it's kind of nice that I've had that account active for a long time. So I can I love to go and pull spreadsheets and things like that. So I can go look over the last you know, eight or nine years of expenses. And I really cut down my food from, it was probably in in the neighborhood of 800 to $1,000 a month for groceries, restaurants, takeout, all that stuff. And it's been down under $400 a month for the last probably four or five months. So that's another area where I'm not starving. I'm still doing, I'm still eating plenty, but I'm not spending nearly as much as I used to. So that's, I think that's an easy place for people to save some money. Definitely. I would think if, well, I shouldn't say if nothing else, but one area that I'm sure people probably are noticing their budget right now, because you can't very easily get to a restaurant is savings there. Uh, So maybe after we get to some sort of normal people will recognize that they can buy their groceries and make their dinner and set aside some time and and slow down maybe a little bit with that. And it'll be good for their wallet. And I would argue even good for your family life, not to sound like I'm from the 1950s, but being able to slow down and eat dinner with your family and talk about the day that really is time that is important for your family to bond, in my opinion. You know, it's fun to cook with your kids, to teach them certain things and to have them contribute to the routine. Um, and not, you know, I guess if you order out, you're still doing that, but it, uh, to a certain degree. But but there is something different about cooking dinner and having it together. And, um, and, and honestly, you know, I'll make enough food that I've got leftovers and then that's lunch the next day or dinner the next night. And um, it's I've ordered pizza, you know, a handful of times and and hey, I love pizza, but it's like, man, I just spent $25 for basically one meal, where if I'd spent $25 at the grocery store, I could have easily gotten probably three meals out of that. And so it's just, it's not, not I'm not somebody who, who thinks that you should never spend a penny on any kind of um, fringe stuff like ordering pizza. But I think just, it doesn't have to be every Friday night, you know, or every 
Wednesday and Friday night. Like if it's something that you're doing like twice a week, like maybe one of those nights drop it and then try cooking. And then maybe it's twice a month instead of four times a month and, and kind of scaling it back to a point where you, you don't realize, you know, um, how much you're spending on stuff like that. And, and then it actually becomes more of a treat when you do order pizza or when you do go out to eat because it's like, hey, we haven't gone out in a few weeks. Like this is going to be a lot of fun. So it becomes a little bit more special, I think, um, as well when you when you kind of limit it. For the same reason Christmas is only once a year, right? <laughs> if, it's, if it's less time, then it actually means a little bit more and is a, is a little bit more special. We've been focusing on the spend part of the budget. How have you gone about your investments, both in your personal strategy and then even just educating yourself? And again, obviously, that goes right along with what you're doing with your website and podcast. I've been very fortunate that my employer... Uh, contributes 9% of my salary annually to a retirement fund without me doing anything. And so that I've been allowing that to just happen on its own over the last probably eight, eight years or so, which has been great, but I never paid much attention to it. And I was not contributing anything on my own. I kind of figured, well, they're already putting in 9%. So that's, that's a pretty nice chunk of change. I can, I'll use the rest to cover my bills and living expenses. And so I've, I've made the change this year where I'm now contributing money um, each paycheck, I, I have money that's set aside that goes into to a TIA account. And I've also started to really learn a lot about index funds, for example, and how that's a really simple way to invest in the market without making it super complicated. It's very low fee. So you're not spending a bunch of money to have somebody come up with this portfolio of of all these random things that you have no idea what they are, and they're going to charge you you know, it, there's a big difference between 0.04 fee percent fee versus um, a 0.9 percent fee, and they both seem really small. It's like, oh, that's less than one percent. What's the difference? And it ends up being thousands and thousands of dollars over a long period of time um, that you're paying in fees for these these kind of more complex um, portfolios that you might uh, have have. Um, a company put together for you. So, um, so I've, I've read a lot. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I've heard people's take on things, and so I've really started to shift more towards index funds. Which is, I, I'm being a little bit more aggressive right now because I'm trying to play catch up. I, I I know that I haven't been investing the way I needed to over the years, and so I realize that I'm taking on a little bit more risk. And we've all seen that the market has gone way up and then way down and then way back up again. And so it's a real um, kind of crazy experience for people, but. I think if you're if you're looking to hold this over a longer period of time, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, then you can ride those ups and downs and then overall you're going to make money on it. So, um so it's been fun to learn more about investing in the stock market to be more involved in it, but not to the point where I'm checking it every day and freaking out if it goes dips down 2% or or jumping for joy if it goes up 3%, just kind of you know, pay attention to it, but realize that it's really more of a long-term investment that is is going to pay off for you. Yeah, I must admit, I definitely check the app on my phone for the way the stock market is going, certainly more than I should have. But even I shut it off when we got into March in the beginning of the lockdowns because, you know, save yourself a minor heart attack <laughs> by uh, just you need to automate your behaviors. Uh, I've had my financial advisor on the show a, a number of times, and that's one of the primary themes that we talk about is automate the behaviors and nobody can time the market because they would have already. And we'd know, you know, they'd be more famous than Warren Buffett. <laughs> we talk about picking stocks and, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think that is definitely good advice. Now, something else that I usually hear from people deep into the financial independent movement is, of course, separating out your retirement accounts, which you can't get to until you're 59 and a half, and then some other form of investments via presumably a taxable income account. Do you have a separation like that for yourself or uh, primarily focus on the traditional retirement vehicles. Yeah, for for now basically I've had just the retirement account through my employer, but I've looked at I've looked at other things altogether where I would like to and actually um what really got me kind of going down this path to begin with was I I was really interested in investing in investing in real estate. And that's part of what really triggered my exposure or, or kind of um, opened my eyes to the fire movement was just looking, hearing it uh, through people who have invested in real estate, and so I've learned a lot about that as well. That was probably a good 
you know, um, nine to 12 months of me researching that and trying to get my, um, get into that kind of industry. And, and, and specifically I wanted to own kind of multifamily homes, rent them out, potentially live in a unit and then rent out the other units in like a duplex or a triplex and, and have that as kind of a passive income stream for for myself. In addition to just the traditional retirement, I, I just realized that I wasn't in a position financially to do that yet. So I had to kind of put a pause on that for a while and focus more on pay down my debt, increase my savings. And then when I'm in a position to invest in a, in a, in real estate, then I can start to generate some passive income. And I think it is important for people to not, to not just put everything maybe into their, into their retirement funds and to also look at alternate forms of income to help supplement their lifestyle on the way and then potentially provide extra income down the road as well. So, um, so for me, the other area that I would like to focus on at some point when I'm in a better position is, is real estate investing. I became an accidental landlord uh, when we moved to Richmond. I had a house in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And I will at least say that managing a rental property is not quite as scary as it might seem. Like when you hear about the 2 a.m. calls to change a light bulb or worse, like plumbing issues or things like that. I feel like just like anything, the more homework you do on the front end, in this case, vetting your potential uh, uh, renter and making sure that they are a viable and reliable person to rent out your property, a lot of those issues can be avoided. Now that said, you hear people that are really into the real estate and say, it's only a matter of time once you deal in enough volume that you're going to have to deal with an eviction and other crazy issues like that. So maybe I just got lucky with my one property, which I did ultimately sell once the market came back up and eventually you'll deal with it. But I I do think that is a worthy venture to to look at. And I kind of have a have it in, in the back of my mind, uh, but haven't pulled the trigger uh, just yet. H- have you dealt with uh, any real estate investments up to this point at all? I've looked into homes. I have talked with a lot of people, gone to local meetings. So I've learned a lot about it. And it's, I, I think I'm in a position where once I'm ready financially to to make that investment, I'm going to be in a, a good spot to understand what I'm getting myself into. Like you said, it's there's there's pros and cons to it. It's not a cakewalk, but I think between having cash flow, if you if you kind of buy the right kind of property, having some cash flow, having some appreciation long term, the potential with as far as tax write-offs go, there's a lot of different different areas that can benefit you. So so I'm excited to get there at some point, but it's just it's just a bit on pause for now. And hopefully it's something in uh, the next year or so that I'll be in a better position to to pursue. Clearly you have done your homework with your investing. So I'm sure you will do all your homework as far as uh, the rental property is concerned. And that's really all it is, is just education uh, there. Well, let's turn a little bit more to family. Again, we we talked a little bit about uh, divorce and how that was part of your financial journey, but you're also a dad and we talk about family things, specifically parenting all the time on the show. So tell me a little bit about your kids and what are you doing to gear up for school? What kind of activities are you dealing with? Just how's dad life? It's been really good. It's uh, So they they did a good job kind of going through the transition. Um, I'm fortunate that I, I still live very close to their mom. We're in the same town and, and we get along really well. So so they still see both of us on a really on a regular basis. Uh, my son is, uh, he just turned 10 and my daughter just turned eight. So they're at a really good point in life. It's kind of a fun age for them. My son has become a big football fan and he loves to play video games. And so it's kind of fun that we've now gotten to this point where we can kind of do things together, both as as a parent and a son, but also kind of as buddies and, and as friends. And so that's been kind of a fun experience. And then, you know, my daughter, she's just, she's amazing. She comes up with the most I don't know. She talks like she's she's eight years old, but she talks like she's 16 sometimes. And it's really cute now. It's probably going to get scary as she gets a little bit older. But um, but it's been going really well. And yeah, school school is coming around the corner here. We're We're just trying to figure out. I'm in New Hampshire. And in probably like a lot of areas, it's been left up kind of school by school to make the decision how they're going to handle this school year with COVID still lingering. And so uh, it sounds like our plan for now is to go back to school in person 
and be on site. I think they did a survey and probably 80% of the families opted to to pursue in-person education and then another percentage is going to do remote. But they already expect that probably by mid-November to, to have to drop back to remote learning, which is what we did in the spring. And just because at that point, you know, there's going to be kind of traditional flu season will start to 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 flow in and it's going to be really difficult to know what the difference between kind of regular flu and COVID. And so at that point, they're probably just going to send everyone back home. But at least that gives them a couple of months to interact with their teachers, get to know each other. And I think the idea is that will make the remote learning a little more effective when there's some kind of a a relationship between the between the teacher and the, the students. So so it's a little crazy, you know, we're we're trying to be patient and we understand this is difficult for everybody and it's not going to be a, a regular school year by any means, but we're 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 trying to figure it out and I think we're going to be able to do stuff like play soccer and some activities like that. So they'll still get outside and, and interact with other kids. It's a year that we will never forget for sure and hopefully it's just this year and it doesn't hang around too much longer than that. But we're, we're doing our best with this. And, um, and the kids have, have really dealt pretty well with it. It's, I don't know, I don't know if this is all going to come out in therapy at some point, or they're just really processing things well, but they almost like it doesn't even phase them. They don't even seem to, to care what's going on. They're like, all right, whatever, we'll just, you know, do do go on vacation and hang out and watch YouTube and ride our bikes and kind of be normal kids and doesn't seem to phase them too much. You took the words right out of my mouth saying, hopefully it's just this year. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, doesn't continue. Well, I won't theorize, I guess uh, what happens, we'll just take it as it comes. But uh, yeah, the age for your kids is, I think, a little bit interesting. For example, uh, in a show we did a few weeks back, uh, I was able to have uh, our local community school board member on and I was explaining that we opted to put my son in a private school that is going to go five days a week because our public school was starting virtual and was really on the fence about how there would be any any in-person learning. And for me, it was pretty easy to say, I don't see how a kindergartner could benefit at all from all virtual learning. But I feel like your kids being at eight and 10, what's your thoughts about that age and what they would be getting out of virtual compared to classroom learning? So I got to see a lot of it firsthand. They were with me, um, just the way my schedule worked. So three days a week, they would do their kind of uh, work from home schooling um, in the spring. And it, I noticed a big difference between my son and daughter. So my son being a little older, he would come in, they, they, he got a Chromebook through the school, he'd sit down and he'd have a list on kind of, I think it was through like a Google classroom. And he would just knock out his work and kind of do it all. And, and it was it was kind of organized and he was able to follow the instructions. Whereas my daughter was on a tablet doing it. And I was like, I feel like this is like mostly YouTube videos. Even though the teacher was recording things, they're just kind of watching videos. And then she just seemed much less engaged. And it didn't seem as effective with her just being a, a couple of years younger. And whereas he would, I think when she got on like a, like a call, like a classroom call, it was almost just like chaos. The kids are young enough where they're not really, they're just kind of laughing and like talking to each other. And it was just hard, I think, for the teacher to really have it be kind of become a productive conversational environment. And, and again, my son being a little older, I witnessed his calls and the teacher could say, okay, we read this chapter, you know, what happened to this character? And then the kids would kind of take turns a little bit and rotate through and, seemed a little bit more of a normal classroom environment. So so I don't know what the what the kind of cutoff really becomes if it's like you said if it's kindergarten first maybe second grade it's still pretty tough but once you start getting up into third fourth fifth grade and up it's I think the kids are a little more prepared to handle that but um it also obviously is going to be very different from kid to kid. Yeah, definitely. And of course I really wonder if whatever shifting we see throughout the school year is going to have any lasting impact on how school goes going forward. What I mean by that is, will there be certain efficiencies that's found? For example, if there is a continued amount of online, who's to say there's not some prepackaged, the world's greatest teacher records all of these classes and that's sort of what you get rather than having the local element to it or not. You know, if you've really got to the point where uh, virtual becomes as effective. And I think something else that 
continues to be in the conversation. And it sounds like you've had a similar experience is if a kid's at home and they're not, let's say, having to move from classroom to classroom or be bused to school, of course, and all the other things that aren't the actual learning, you probably can get the day's schoolwork in, in what, three hours, something like that? Two or three hours, it's almost like is all you need. And if and if the, the, the kid is, is focused enough to just kind of work through their stuff and take maybe a little bit of a break here or there, yeah, you can ease. And that was the thing that I think... My my son was like, "All right, I'm done with all my stuff." I'm like, "It's 11:30. Like, you can't possibly be done. School goes until 2:30. You know, like, what are we supposed to do?" And but yeah, you, like you said, there's all these other little things built into your day: walking to classes and going to gym and having lunch and the, and all the kind of transitional stuff that actually probably fills up whatever percentage of the day that is. I don't know if it's 20% of the day, 30% of the day is, is all this other miscellaneous stuff. And so, yeah, you're right. That's going to be interesting to see do we just kind of fall back into the traditional environment or are there going to be some longer term um, adjustments to, to the environment and the schedule and how we uh, facilitate uh, the classroom environment? Bringing together uh, the couple of elements of your family life that we've talked about, how do you and your ex-wife go about making sure the transition was as easy as possible and just being able to co-parent? It's a challenge, right? It's, it's, um, and I think we're lucky because we have said throughout this that whatever decisions we make, we want to make the best decisions for the kids. And so we're not in a position where we're, and I'm, I, f- I feel very fortunate that we, we still get along and we realize this isn't, the marriage isn't going to work, but, you know, we're still going to be co-parents and we're still going to be the mother and father of these kids. And so we're still a family, even though we're not in, in the traditional sense, spending that same time together, but we have to be consistent. And so we'll, you know, we'll still go to school teacher meetings together and we talk regularly, even if it's just through texting or email. I mean, I know people that are divorced and they might either talk badly about the other parent or kind of just kind of create parents can really create some uh, the kids are watching, right? Like the kids are paying attention to how you talk about their their father or their mother. And so we've I think we are we're aware of that. And so we always want to make sure that even if we might have frustrations with each other or things that we don't agree with, that that's not that's for us to deal with as adults and not for the kids to see. So I think it's it's how you kind of present things in front of the kids, but also how you communicate away from them is equally as important. So we try to, to stay in touch regularly and have those conversations. I think what is hard for us is that our conversations can be very transactional where it's like, I'm picking up the kids or I'm dropping off the kids. And so we've got kind of a, you know, five, 10 minute window in there to kind of catch up on everything. And the kids are still kind of running around saying, you know, they want to jump into the next activity. And so I don't know that we've found a good way to communicate person to person outside of those pickups and drop offs. Um, and maybe that's something that we could do be- better at. But I think overall, we've we've done a pretty good job, um, all things considered. I'll pick up on the one point that you made about the kids listening. Uh, again, when we did an episode about divorce in that transition, one of the topics was about that exactly, that you don't want to talk bad about the other parents with the kids around. And I brought up saying that probably is a good rule of thumb when you are married. And, uh, and, but actually, uh, the, our guests corrected me and said, well, there is a difference because in, while you're married, they would see the full cycle of an argument. For example, if, if presumably you're not talking behind each other's back, you know, while you're married that, that the kids can see, but if they see you have an argument, but then they see you resolve it, then they could actually have a healthy uh, perspective on, yes, you can have a disagreement, but here's also the way to solve it. So I thought that was an interesting perspective, but again, going back to what you're reiterating, you got to be careful because they are watching, right? Yeah. And I mean, my, my theory with parenting has been to just try not to overthink things too much. I think if you're generally a kind person and you're kind to your children and you love them and you provide shelter and care and just kind of a, you don't have to be perfect. It's okay. You're going to mess things up and you're not going to know what you're doing. It's like, I've realized this now uh, thinking back, like my parents didn't know what they were doing. I I thought they knew (laughs) what they were doing, but they clearly you know, we're winging it. And that's what I think all parents are doing. And so that's okay. And give yourself a break. You don't have to be perfect as a parent. 
I think it's just important that, that I think that's a really good in, in, interesting point that that you brought up there where it, seeing the kind of resolution in addition to the conflict is really a healthy and important thing because if if they see no conflict or they see only conflict, you know, then then that's not a, a balanced environment. And so I think it is important and okay for them to see that conflict as long as you can kind of tie up those loose ends and, and show that full cycle. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's why I'm just a parent and our my guest is the child psychologist. Because <laughs> yeah, after she said it, I'm like, oh, that does make a lot of sense. <laughs> well, one more topic that we cover regularly is around travel. So do you make a priority to use your vacations for travel or what's your perspective there? More recently in life, my travel has been very local. And I, like I said, I live in New Hampshire, so that it's a great place to to live and to travel. So it's it's easy to do day trips to, to Maine or to Vermont um, or down to the Cape in, in Massachusetts. So, um, so most of my travel has been more local, I would say over the last 10 years or so. I, I did a lot of travel when I was younger, and I, I do miss that where I went you know, other parts of the country. I was international. I've been to Europe a couple times and I do really miss some of that. And I think now that my kids have gotten a little older and if I'm in a better place financially, I would love to have that become a more regular part of my life and to get back to some of those experiences. Because I remember going on trips with my parents as a kid my parents might have been miserable during the trip, but I didn't know it. And, you know, I mean, you've, you've traveled with your kids, you know, that that can be challenging. And I think you know that firsthand, but it's great for the kids to get those experiences to see other places and other cultures and, and, and get out of their comfort zone. You know, I think that's, uh, that's important to get out. And, and that's part of what's great about travel is it forces you out of your routine and it kind of resets everything for you. And so, uh, so that's something I would love to, to pick up more um, in the coming years, for sure. I'm kind of laughing to myself because yes, I, I do know that very well as far as traveling with the kids is concerned. Uh, I've officially stolen my parents' line of, you'll appreciate this when you get older, even though you're complaining about all the things that we're taking you to now. And actually, I was counting up the number of states in the lower 48 that my son has been to, and he's already up to 10. So I'm like, all right, well, you've seen 20, 20% of the country at the age of five. That's pretty good. And of course, the main reason I had to ask you about travel, as you know, is since you are in New Hampshire, uh, New England, I've only gotten a chance to do a very quick vacation. It was a wedding in Vermont, and we were able to very briefly hit uh, Portsmouth and and then just sort of up the coast. Uh, what are your recommendations for people that are planning a New England vacation? Yeah, so I mean, if you're coming up here, there's 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 so much to do. I think New Hampshire is interesting because we've got this little teeny coastline. I think it's maybe a dozen miles or so, twelve or thirteen miles of coastline. So it's really small, but um, but it's nice because we do have the beaches, and then the White Mountains are a couple of hours north. And Mount Washington is a is a beautiful mountain. There's the Presidential Range kind of goes all through that area. And so if you're into hiking, there's a ton of hiking in New Hampshire, Maine, and, and Vermont on either side are, are also amazing states to travel to. Maine's got a great coastline. I mean, even just driving up from, if you drive from Boston up up to Portland, even there's so many cute little beach towns um, all along the coast of Maine. One of my favorite spots is Acadia National Park, which is uh, maybe another, I don't know, uh, hour and a half, two hours north of Portland, maybe. It's a, just a beautiful national park right in the water. And Cadillac Mountain is is in the park. And actually, if you drive up there and you can hike up to it, it's uh, the first place in the continental United States that sees the sun every morning. So you can go up there for a sunrise. And it's like the first place where the sun hits the US every day. Um, and so that's a really beautiful spot. And then yeah, Vermont's a great state as well, where I've, I've been up to Burlington and to Stowe, and there's a lot to do up there as well. So I mean, there's there's a lot to, to find. Um, every state you could you could explore and spend plenty of time in. you know, Boston's a great city. It's, it's a little confusing and stressful if you're, even if you are from around here, Boston is something that I love the city, um, but it can be very difficult to navigate. So, you know, the earlier cities were kind of a mess when you get out West and they've kind of figured out like, okay, you know, Phoenix or, 
you know, some of these other places, like it's more of a grid, I think. So it's a little easier to navigate Boston as just kind of like a pile of spaghetti. Like the streets are just all one way streets going in every direction. It's crazy. But it is a really cool city. It's one of my favorites. So yeah, I mean, there's a ton to do. It's a it's a great area. And obviously the fall, that's that's when everyone likes to come up here and, and travel and and drive through. You can just do these road trips up through uh, New Hampshire and Vermont and see some amazing foliage. Not sure what this year is going to look like with the summer has been kind of uh, a little interesting, but it's always a good a good time of year to come up as the fall and, you know, get your maple syrup and uh, do some leaf peeping and all the traditional stuff here in New Hampshire. Very cool. Yeah, you're right. I, I immediately think of fall, although the trip that I mentioned was in the summer. And I will also second what you mentioned for Boston. I think I got honked at at least three times <laughs> for trying to make my way to wherever we were going. Uh, I, I definitely felt a little bit rushed, but nonetheless, once you get parked, obviously there is plenty of historical things to see. And Oh yeah, absolutely. Challenge. Yeah. So very cool. And who knows, maybe the next time I get up there, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep in touch and we can go grab a beer or something. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's. I mean, there is a craft brewery like every square mile around here. So it's like between Dunkin' Donuts and craft breweries, it's like you're never out of reach of coffee or beer. So it's uh, yeah, <laughs> definitely uh, ring me up if you head up this way. <laughs> Perfect. That sounds like my kind of place. Well, Ben, I really appreciate you being on the show. Before I do let you go, do you want to go ahead and give your uh, blog and podcast information, any contact info if people are trying to get a hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so it's the website is fiafter40.com. So it's F-I-A-F-T-E-R 40.com. And so you can go there and see um, I post every podcast episode there. I, I post a blog as well. Um, taking a little bit of time off this month to do some vacationing stuff in the summer, but should be picking that back up pretty soon. The podcast is on all the, the main services, Apple, Spotify, etc. And then I'm also on Instagram and Twitter uh, and Facebook as well. So just search for Fi After 40. And you'll find my uh, my information there. And I'd love to hear from people. If you uh, want to reach out, um, fiveafter40 at gmail.com. Perfect. And of course, I'll put all of your information into the show notes. So it's very easy for folks to find you. Again, I appreciate you joining the show and we'll be in touch. All right, Greg. Thanks so much. This is great. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to suburbanfolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to ringmedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G media.com.